Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Some 20 states, including Wisconsin, as well as the Federal Bureau of Prisons, currently de- detain over 6,000 people mostly men, who were previously convicted of sex offenses, but who have completed their criminal sentences. They're confined often indefinitely through civil commitment procedures in prison-like treatment facilities. The practice has been likened to double jeopardy or repeat punishment for the same crime. Joining us today to discuss this seldom examined situation is activist, researcher, writer, and editor Emma Peyton Williams. Emma Williams' uh, work has uh, focused on the intersection of social sciences and the criminal punishment system. Uh, She's the author of the recently released overview report on such civil commitment facilities for the Prison Policy Initiative. Welcome, Emma Williams. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Emma Williams, let's start by providing our listeners with some context, some background, some history perhaps. Where did this system of civil commitment facilities come from? When did they come when did they come about? So there was a rash of initial laws uh, called Sexually Violent Persons Acts um, in the 1990s and 2000s in, uh, across, as you said, about 20 states. And in most states, these were reactive to um, particularly horrific and, and well-documented media-covered um, instances of abuse. Did their origins, this whole network, it's, I, I, when I read your report, I kept in the back of my mind thinking of this kind of unknown gulag Uh, Did their origins have something to do with the political and social climate at the time, the broader social climate, political climate? That's a great question. I think that these are very um, representative of the impacts of a tough on crime era that we saw in the 90s and are seeing a resurgence of currently. People are, in essence, reincarcerated through civil rather than criminal procedures. Explain the distinction for those not familiar and what that has meant. Yeah, so the laws vary from state to state, but uh, in Illinois, which is where I live and the state that I would consider myself an expert on, um, under our Sexually Violent Persons Act, after somebody finishes their criminal sentence, they are retried in a civil court if they are deemed someone who might fit the criteria for a sexually violent person's uh, diagnosis or, or determination. Um, and the outcome of that retrial through the civil uh, courts is that they are then confined to a second facility that's considered a treatment facility. But we find that often in practice, this functions essentially like a prison or a de facto life sentence. In some states, you've written people are transferred directly from prison to a civil commitment facility at the end of their sentence. Uh but that has varied from state to state. Talk about it, uh, that a little bit. Uh, you mentioned Texas, for instance, in your report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it depends on the state. What we've heard is that um, due to some great reporting down in Texas, that the initial uh, group that was incarcerated at the Texas Civil Commitment Facility was a group of men who had already been released and were living in a halfway house, had finished the terms of their criminal sentence, and then were woken up in the middle of the night um, about, I think, this was a couple hundred people um, and were taken to a facility. I think they were given one trash bag to collect their items um, and no prior notice that they would be reincarcerated. So they were hauled off in the middle of the night from their, their homes? Was that, from was the halfway houses where halfway they were houses, staying. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, some advocates call such civil commitment facilities shadow prisons. Why is that the case? 
I think that there are a number of advocates who feel that the term civil commitment um, is too soft or doesn't accurately characterize the nature of these facilities. A lot of people who are experts on the criminal legal system don't know about these facilities. They live in the shadows. And so that term reflects uh, both their shadowy nature and then also the fact that this um, is not a civil practice and, and it's not a treatment facility. It is more like a prison. And so that's where that, that term comes from. And, and of course, uh, there's been next to nil news coverage, certainly in the mainstream, about, about this system. Absolutely. That's a, a big motive behind this report is making sure that we start a conversation about this that has uh, really lived at the, the margins. You're listening to activist, uh, journalist, researcher, reporter, uh, Emma Williams. We're talking about civil commitment facilities uh, and we'll be, uh, per usual, opening up the phone lines at half past the hour at 608-256-2001 if you want to join in today's conversation with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, 608-256-2001. Emma Williams, you've examined the civil commitment system in Illinois as a sort of case study. Tell us about some of the things you've found. Yeah, so the initial reports that we were hearing from people inside were um, about medical neglect and about a really alarming death rate. At one point, we did a FOIA that revealed that more people had died inside this facility than been released. And we were hearing that people felt disappeared, that they were given very little notice that they would be transferred to these facilities, that their family anticipated that they would be coming home um, and were devastated to learn that they would be reconfined. Um, And inside we're hearing, as I said, alarming death rates, uh, high rates of medical neglect, um, high rates of abuse from from staff to residents, um, and very ineffective treatment. So you were talking here, of course, about the the Rushville Treatment and Detention Facility in Illinois, um, the state's uh, civil commitment center. It's not just a subject, it's not subject to the same kind of oversight um, because it is housed on, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it is housed under the Department of Human Services rather than the Department of Corrections. Why is that an important distinction? Uh, when we think of prisons in, in broader terms, we think that well, these departments of corrections are pretty bad to begin with, and these appear to, from what you're telling us, appear to be uh, worse. Absolutely. So the fact that these facilities are housed under agencies that are not the Department of Corrections is a problem for two reasons. The first is that what we hear from people inside is that the policies and procedures that they experience are very inconsistent um, and unfamiliar to them after being incarcerated in the Department of Corrections. And so having a sense of what they can expect from this facility is is challenging um, and creates problems on a day-to-day basis. And then on a broader level, it also means that these facilities aren't subjected to the same kind of oversight as the Department of Corrections. So in Illinois, uh, Department of Corrections facilities are overseen by a prison watchdog organization called the John Howard Association, and that's not true of Rushville Treatment and Detention Facility. So you, what has been the result? You mentioned already uh, horrific medical neglect, uh, but also you mentioned in your report that abuse of, at various levels proliferates. Talk about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. So the practices of the the treatment are in and of themselves abusive. Um, we find that people's what people share in therapy is not confidential. It's reported to the court, so they're not able to receive adequate treatment. Um, very archaic treatment measures are used um, to assess somebody's progress through the treatment, including a device called the penile plasmograph, chemical castration, and polygraph tests that are inadmissible in Illinois courts. Um, And then we also hear that people are experiencing high rates of abuse inside. Um, And so, and particularly, there's an over-representation of LGBTQ residents, and they're experiencing transphobic and homophobic abuse. I want to come back to that, of course, that whole, that every bit of that sentence that you just laid out. (laughs) There's a lot uh, there. there, We we hopefully will unpack some of that further. Civil Civil commitment facilities are housed under different agencies. What is that from state to state? What is that meant? 
It's meant that collecting data about these facilities has been uh, exceedingly difficult. So the best data that we have, the data that we report, use in the report that says over 6,000 people are subjected to this across the U.S. says over 6,000 people are in these facilities. But we are under the impression from anecdotal reports on the ground that that number is actually higher. But there's no centralized collection of that data at the federal level currently. A critique of, of the existing system is, is reflected in a, in a term reform and abolition advocates use to describe it. That is pre-crime preventative detention. What is that? So that the phrase pre-crime preventative detention um, has been growing in popularity because the logic that uh, is used to confine people in civil commitment facilities is assessing the risk that they will reoffend. So. Um, due to the Kansas versus Hendricks uh, Supreme Court finding, people cannot be confined twice for the same crime. So theoretically, supposedly, folks are not being confined for their initial crime. They're being confined for the risk that they'll uh, cause another crime in the future. Civil commitment, unlike other involuntary commitment practices, right, can be <clears throat> seen not just as a double jeopardy, uh, repeat punishment for an initial crime, but for a preventative detention for this theoretical future crime that you just touched on. I think that opens up, well, it's it's this like bottomless pit of you can't win if you're if you're in one of these places. 608-256-2001. Again, we'll open up the phones after a while. If you want to join us with a uh, join the conversation with a comment, a question, an observation for our guest today, Emma Williams, again six zero eight two five six two thousand and one. Now, Emma Williams, advocates rightly critique the fact that one of the primary justifications for civil commitment is the predicted risk that detained individuals was, as you used the, the word just before, reoffend. Talk about that. Take it deeper. What is, what is the reality versus this belief that these people will reoffend? Mm-hmm. So Bureau of Justice Statistics data reflects that people who have been convicted of sex offenses have the lowest reoffense rates of any category of formerly incarcerated person. Um, but because of uh, sensationalization and uh, serious fear of the, the nature of the kinds of offenses that people who've been convicted of sex offenses have committed, um, there's a, a public sentiment that they are the, the worst of the worst, the most dangerous. And so risk assessment tools um, and evaluations are used to predict the likelihood that they will cause harm in the future, and then that justifies their um, indefinite detention. In many states, people who have been convicted of sex offenses are transferred from Department of Corrections facilities, as we've touched upon, to civil commitment facilities at the um at the end, at, excuse me, at the end of, of their sentence and held for pretrial, then resentenced by civil courts. What has that meant uh, in regard to, well, the length of these sentences is often indeterminate and so on? Yeah, so when somebody is sentenced to civil commitment, it's not like a criminal sentence where, you know, you're told that you might serve 30 years and potentially with good time credits, you could serve less than 30 years. Uh, there is no outdate that comes when you're sentenced to civil commitment. You are sentenced to civil commitment until you complete treatment. But what we hear from people inside is that completing treatment is nearly impossible. And the survey we sent inside in 2019 revealed that the on average residents had been there for nine and a half years. That's at the uh, Rush facility? At Rushville, yes, correct. Rushville, excuse me. <clears throat> a recent 2022 report from Illinois, which you co-authored, went beyond the numbers and reports that for many, civil commitment seems like a life sentence. You kind of touched on it just now, but go into that a little bit uh, more fully. Why is that so? So because somebody doesn't have a definite release date, they aren't sure how long they're going to be there. And so people oftentimes feel like it's uh, forever. And what we find is that progressing through treatment is nearly impossible. People are frequently bumped back to the beginning of the treatment process, uh, moved down there. It's called tiers, treatment tiers. 
um, so that they have to start over. And that results in a sentiment inside of, of hopelessness. People feel very anxious with no sense of when they'll get out. And a lot of people have kind of um, resigned themselves to accepting that this is a life sentence as opposed to uh, something that might, might end someday. Uh, talk about that tier system a little bit more fully. What, what are the tiers? How, how, how are they determined? What, what mm-hmm. are the steps? So I don't have the documents explaining the exact criteria for the tiers in front of me, but uh, what we find is that people go in and start on a, on a base tier and then are moved up, progress through levels, dependent on what's their determined uh, progress through treatment. And their progress through treatment is assessed using, as I mentioned before, very archaic tools like polygraph lie detector tests, you know, plasmograph tests, um, and various other psychological and uh, risk assessment evaluations. But because staff turnover in these facilities is very high, people oftentimes are bumped back to earlier phases in treatment when a new uh, staff therapist comes in and disagrees with a previous staff therapist's assessment about someone's level of, of progress. A 2019 study of residents in Rushville exposed demographic disparities, discrimination and abuses inside, and flaws with the broader framework of civil commitment. Coming back to unpacking what what we blew by a little bit earlier, um, talk about, uh, let's start, of course, with with the, the fact that like the broader carceral system, civil commitment disproportionately impacts black and brown people. Yeah, so our survey revealed an overrepresentation, particularly of Black, Indigenous, and multiracial people. Um, specifically, Black people and Native American people were represented um, at a rate of twice the the rate in the Illinois general population. Um, additionally, we find that the criteria that results in people's detention uh, leads to a distinct overrepresentation of LGBTQ people. Rushville, of course, is not exceptional. Uh, that on average, black people were detained in civil commitment facilities at twice the rate, as you've mentioned. Talk about biased admission criteria, which have led to Mm -hmm. disproportionate consequences for various select groups, people of color. uh, You've mentioned several times now LGBTQ folks. Unpack that a little bit. These criteria based upon what some sense of what is normal? Right, right. So um, some researchers at the Williams Institute revealed uh, that the rates on average across the U.S. of overrepresentation of Black people is uh, greater than that of in the, the general criminal legal system. And they in part attributed that to um, racist tropes about Black men as being uh, bigger, sexually dangerous, violent, things that we, we know are not true. Um, but we see reflecting the demographics inside these facilities. And our report in particular, we took a look at the uh, risk assessment evaluation that is done to assess somebody's likelihood to reoffend. Um, and there's, there's a lot of issues with that tool itself that we can get into. But the one of the questions on the exam, it's a nine question test and it assigns each question assigns you a point, and the more points you have, the higher risk of reoffending you're considered to be. And people who had a same-sex victim were considered higher risk of reoffending, and people who have never lived with a romantic partner before were considered to be at higher risk of reoffending. And we know that a lot of uh, same-sex couples are not able to live together in their areas due to safety concerns and stigma. And we also know that young people oftentimes haven't matured to the age where they might have the opportunity to live with a paramour. Um, And so we see these criteria as as resulting in great bias, and that's reflected in the um, population numbers, uh, the percentage and demographics that we see inside the facility itself. Another another group of that I found interesting that you mentioned, and as soon as as soon as I read it, I said, "Oh, sure, of course," is this disproportionate representation of disabled people. Talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit, how it reflects obvious biases baked into it in your language, baked into the civil commitment decision-making process. Yeah. So while our, our research on uh, over-representation of disability was 
people with disabilities was somewhat inconclusive, one of the criteria for admission to the facility is that someone be diagnosed with a psychiatric disability. Um, and so, you know, by that criteria, 100% of people inside are considered disabled. By self-report, we hear that 26% of people inside self-identified as having a disability. But some respondents who did not self-identify as having a disability would later mention accommodations that they need for mobility impairments or special diets they need to follow for diabetes. So we know that that number is an underrepresentation of how many people are actually inside. Many, many states use various what you've referred to already as risk assessment evaluations to determine whether or not one should be uh, civilly committed. Talk about that some more, how the, eva- <coughs> excuse me, folks, how the evaluation methods are generally pr- problematic and frequently make incorrect predictions. Yeah, so the static 99R is a risk assessment tool that took um, a number of different studies on what factors make one more likely to cause sexual harm. And from that determined a number of criteria that uh, could be people could be surveyed to see if they match those criteria. And then the more criteria the match, the higher their risk of reoffending is is supposedly. But that's using a past person's behavior to predict a future person's behavior. Um, And also the majority of the studies that inform the uh, risk assessment tool were unpublished and uh, so they did not go through a peer review process. So we have concerns about the legitimacy of the data that informs the tool and we also have concerns about the sort of theoretical underpinnings of the tool itself. Can we really predict someone's future behavior by asking them nine questions? That that static 99R test, you also pointed out is uh, a risk <clears throat> as a risk assessment tool is also notably homophobic. Yes, yes. Um, asking if somebody's uh, victim is of the same sex uh, leads to a higher ratio of, of people who ex- uh, men who have sex with men in these facilities. Um, and additionally, again, having people who've never been able to live with a partner be considered higher risk. Uh, means that LGBTQ people who haven't had that privilege and that right um, are overrepresented as well. The criteria for detention usually includes a diagnosis of a mental abnormality. Um, The act of civilly committing people to a treatment facility implies that there is a mental health issue or non-normative sexual behavior. That's, I think I was trying to get to that before, that notion of non-normative um, mm-hmm. it becomes incriminating in essence. Absolutely. Well, it applies that uh, that there is a category of sexual desire that needs to be treated or cured. And, you know, obviously sexual harm is very serious and needs to be addressed, but that's the idea that there is a category of sexual behavior that is out of the norm and, and requires treatment is a pretty slippery slope. Um, and this this use of psychiatry in this way has been completely disavowed by the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, They've said that sexual predator commitment laws represent a serious assault on the integrity of psychiatry. So we know that even experts and practitioners do not believe this is an adequate way to use these diagnostic tools. What has mental abnormality as a criteria for admission meant? We've touched on it, but I want to come back to it. squeeze this out a little bit. Uh, That is, by the logic of civil commitment, 100% of people inside are viewed as having a psychiatric disability. And Mm -hmm. so, so again, it's this this loop, it's this no-win situation. Could, Could we explore that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So the diagnostic criteria, as you said, includes a mental abnormality. And in particular, that uh, means a personality disorder or what's called a paraphilic disorder, which indicates atypical sexual interests. Um, And paraphilic is a problematic category that relies on heavily scrutinizing and pathologizing human sexuality, um, which, as we said, gets under this this slippery slope of uh, allowing the states to make determinations about what kind of sexuality is legitimate. Let's turn our attention to the so-called treatment in these facilities. 
uh, agencies that control civil commitment often insist that civil commitment is treatment and not prison. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting anecdote from the facility in Texas where supposedly people who were locked up in that facility were told to call them, uh, refer to their rooms as rooms and not cells and refer to themselves as residents and not prisoners because um, the idea that these facilities are therapeutic and provide treatment is very central to the the fabric of, of their, the logic that makes them possible. Um, but what we see is that there's there's not a lot of data that supports that this treatment is actually effective. People are not provided with one-on-one therapy. Um, for the most part, therapy is in group and, and usually starts with asking someone to recount every sexually traumatic incident that they've experienced in their life, um, which is, you know, re-traumatizing and, and in a group setting where people don't always feel safe disclosing that to the other people that they're detained with. Um, and a lot of the people who are giving this treatment are grad students who are finishing their residencies and then move on as soon as they finish that. So they're, they're experiencing a rotating cast of therapists that um, have different judgments about them and, and their progress through treatment. And of course, adv- advocates question whether or not civil commitment can be considered therapeutic. Um, talk about, let's unpack that further. That is, uh, two-thirds of the, of the respondents inside Rushville have reported that they've been sent to solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. That is, there's been lots of work uh, on solitary confinement and, and what it means and, what, and its effects. Absolutely. There's significant data that supports the idea that uh, solitary confinement is psychologically damaging, and some data reports it may be permanently psychologically damaging. So a facility that uses punitive tactics like that um, is hardly one that advances healing. And additionally, some of the basic tenets that make up what is uh, quality health care are not present at these facilities. This is not consensual. This is Um, coercive. If you don't participate in this treatment, you're not allowed to get out. So even though people technically opt in, if the alternative is that you're uh, detained for life, it's not really a fully consensual decision. And what people share in therapy is not confidential. It's shared with court reporters who decide if they're making progress through therapy. So that that essential aspect of therapy where you have this space that's for you, that's confidential, is taken away. You touched on before, but I and I said we'd come back to it. I wanted to unpack, unpack it a little bit. Uh, the uses of archaic treatment and evaluation technologies. You mentioned, and your article mentions chemical castration, for instance, or hormone injections that inhibit erection. Talk about talk about that a little bit. That what kind of what kind of therapy is that? It's a good question, and I think every time I every time I say this, and every time I hear someone reflect this back to me, it just sort of boggles my mind that this is something that's allowed in the U.S. at this time. But yeah, chemical castration um, is when an individual is prescribed drugs that alter their hormonal chemistry. It's um, intended to lower one's uh, libido and ability to have an erection, um, and we find that there are long-term side effects and health consequences of that. Um, Additionally, the the tools that are used to measure somebody's progress through treatment are absurd, for lack of a better word. The penile plasmograph is a device that's attached to an individual's penis while they're shown uh, sexually suggestive and provocative content, and it uh, measures blood flow and arousal. Hardly, hardly an accurate test, very little uh, evidence that these work, and also just horrifically uh, dehumanizing and degrading. Um, similarly, in these facilities, they and for people who are living in the free world who are on the sex offense registry in Illinois, they're regularly subjected to polygraph lie detector tests, but these tests have been inadmissible in Illinois courts since 1981 because their rates of efficacy are extremely low. 608. 608- Two five six two thousand and one. Join us with a call if you have a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, uh, researcher and abolitionist activist, really, Emma Williams. Again, six zero eight two five six two thousand and one. If you have a question, an observation, a comment, Emma Williams, you write that. Even if we buy into the myth that civil commitment facilities provide the treatment they claim to offer, there is minimal evidence 
that this supposed treatment works and that moving through treatment tiers, as we touched on before, is difficult if not impossible. Can we go further with that? Absolutely. We hear from uh, people who are detained at Rushville that a number of people have opted out of treatment because they've given up completely. They don't feel like uh, anyone is on their side or uh, wants to see them released. And so they would rather not uh, go through re-traumatizing treatment where they have to share all these details of sexual traumas that they've experienced um, and potentially re-incriminate themselves given that the, everything they share in therapy is not confidential. And we hear that employees at Rushville um, are face great obstacles when they try to move people through treatment. So we were looking at um, job review boards and looked at a past employee of Liberty Healthcare Corporation said the hardest part of the job is fighting for residents who should be on conditional release and dealing with the outcome when refusing to act in unethical ways. So people are, are pressured and incentivized not to move people through the treatment. I want to come back to what else you discovered at Rushville. At Rushville, you noted that the average length of detention was 9.5 years and counting uh, and that more than twice as many people had died inside than had ever been, than had even be, ever been released. Uh, slightly more, talk about that further. The the demographics, the population of, uh, you know, how long people are staying in these places with with no view and of you know end in sight. Mm-hmm. At the time that we did the survey um, in. 2019, uh, there were a number of people who had been in the facility for 21 years, and it's very possible that those people are still there. There's a number of people who've been in the facility the entire time that it's opened uh, or been open. Um, and while we have heard and seen in our recent FOIA reports that um, the release numbers have gone up slightly in the last two years, which we're encouraged by. Um, we still are concerned by the size of this facility and, and by the fact that nine and a half years is an average length for people to go through this treatment. I mean, you know, nine and a half years is a really long time to be in any kind of uh, facility or therapy. And, and we wonder if it takes nine and a half years to supposedly work. Is it really working? So these indefinite sentences uh, contingent upon progress through this tier system of treatments uh, contributes to lots of distress inside. How does that play out, ways in which it plays out? I think a lot of people inside feel really abandoned. I think that they it damages their relationships with their family. A lot of people inside have talked about how many people they've seen die, not only inside, but how many loved ones on the, in the free world they've lost who they were not able to say goodbye to. Um, so it's really damaging for people who feel like they don't have a, a pathway towards release um, and who feel completely disconnected from their communities and, and don't feel like anyone is rooting for them to have progress through this, this treatment practice. Talk about the, um, the, the levels of violence that this uh, moves, pushes, creates. Yeah, I mean, so that what I, what we were just discussing, these conditions where people feel like nobody's rooting for them, there's no pathway out, um, leads to a lot of unrest inside. People are unhappy and irritable and feel like the way that they behave does not actually uh, encourage or support their release no matter what they do. So we hear that there are high rates of violence inside, um, both from staff to residents and then between residents. More than three out of four respondents had experienced discrimination from the staff. Uh, 26% reported that they'd been physically harmed by staff. 8% said they'd been sexually harmed by staff. Uh, we hear that frequently um, two out of three people, so pretty often people are saying that they feel Rushville staff put them in places where they could be harmed by other residents, that they're intentionally set up in unsafe situations. You've pointed out that while civil commitment facilities fail to deliver on the very objectives that justified their creation, the trend is toward preventative and therapeutic forms of detention, that's, which is growing. Um, you determine a, a, you determine it, excuse me, you term it <laughs> a disturbing new evolution of an industry, a growing mm -hmm. treatment industrial complex. Describe what's going on. Yeah, so as we're seeing 
criminal legal system reformers and abolitionists make great strides in changing public sentiment and awakening the public to the idea that um, prisons do not do anything to address the issues that they're supposedly justify their creation. We see more and more people saying, you know, okay, we need care, not cops. We need social workers as first responders. We need people in treatment instead of in prison. And while those are really great sentiments and, and reflect a, overall, I think a positive uh, cultural shift, what we're finding is that that language is being co-opted and then facilities like Rushville that are in, in practice more like prisons than, than treatment centers um, are getting funding and, and public support because they are framed as therapeutic and healing centers um, when in fact they do not provide the transformative kind of solutions that, they, that justify their creation. How does that fit into the for-profit prison system? That is the prison industrial complex we often hear about, uh, the move by for-profit prisoner, prison contracts to take over publicly funded facilities. Mm-hmm. That's not an area that I'm an expert in because we don't have private prisons in Illinois, but as the public sentiment against private prisons grows and prison profiteering um, is increasingly seen as a bad thing, and more states are turning towards uh, retaining public control of their prisons. Um, these speculators are still looking for other ways to make profit off of these facilities. And so one way that they can do that is by competing for contracts that um, for outsourced services that departments of corrections or departments of human services can pay for. And that uh, growing sort of body of different um, therapeutic services that uh, private contractors can offer um, is, is what we're terming the treatment industrial complex. At the very beginning, in the intro, I mentioned that Wisconsin is one of the states uh, that has one, of the, one, if not more, of, of these centers. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you share with us a little bit about what you might uh, uh, know about the Wisconsin system? Yeah, so Wisconsin passed its Sexually Violent Persons Act in 1993, um, and I don't know exactly when the facility was opened, but as a result of that act, the Sand Ridge Civil Commitment program was started. Um, and from that, the best data that we have, which again, we we fear may be um, an undercount, um, we are seeing that uh, Wisconsin civilly commits people at a rate of 30.2 people per 1 million Wisconsin residents. So that's ranked seventh amongst the surveyed states. We have, oh, we're approaching uh we have about oh, 12, 13 minutes left in the hour. So, again, if you're listening and you want to get in with a question, a comment, give us a call at 608-256-2001. And, of course, Emma Williams, that reminds me of the question uh, that must come up. That is, what do you say to perhaps one of our listeners even today? Uh, say, well, these people have done horrific things things. They've carried out horrific acts against mm-hmm. uh, some against children and, and, and so on, that they should be locked up uh, indeterminately. Uh, what do you say to them? I really empathize with the desire for consequences for serious harm. My background is in survivor justice. So I, I really understand and, and agree that uh, serious harm warrants consequences. But if we have, if we zoom out and have a transformative goal where our, um, our vision is to have a harm-free world, we find that these facilities perpetuate the very same harm that they're created to address. And so um, while I echo the, the sentiment that consequences and accountability are essential, uh, this isn't the solution we're looking for. We've, your report described a, a system, I used the word gulag earlier, um, mm-hmm. it's a, uh, reading your report, uh, you know, the horrific nature of what's going on com- comes out, uh, quite clearly. Talk about the responses that are, that are underway. What has been occurring, if anything? To respond to the trend right. of these facilities? Sure, sure. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's parallel movements, obviously, around mm-hmm. uh, um, um, mass incarceration, criminalization, uh, mass criminalization, and and so on. Um, 
talk about, you know, you certainly aren't the only one out there in the universe uh, working to spread the word about what's been going on uh, and uh, uh, responses to it. Absolutely. I think that more and more people are waking up to the reality that uh, prisons are not providing us the solutions that we maybe once thought that they were. And I think that I've been really encouraged by a growing trend of people examining the kinds of trauma and violence that can result in one's incarceration, the circumstances that people are surviving, and maybe the maladaptive coping mechanisms they've developed that ultimately uh, resulted in their incarceration. And, And so I think that as that trend grows of people recognizing that oftentimes um, actions that we deem crimes are responses to traumatic situations. Um, As people become more aware of that, I'm encouraged by the hope that we will continue to invest in more sincerely therapeutic options um, at earlier in life interventions too, to prevent people from getting to a place where uh, this kind of detention would be weren't considered. You referenced toward the end of your article campaigns to address ineffective sex offense policies across the U.S. Can you share any of those? Are you familiar with it? Can you talk further about that? Yeah, there's a number of different organizations that are taking a couple different uh, tactics to address um, what some people, I think, term the sex offense policy regime. Um, there are campaigns to end or shrink the sex offense registry system. I know a first step in a lot of those is to get youth off of that um, because we find that there are juvenile and adult registries. Um, and I know that some organizations are supporting ongoing litigation campaigns to challenge the constitutionality and ethics of these facilities. Um And so I think that those are a couple different tactics people are taking, and I'm aware of, uh, I I don't know if any of them are public yet, so I I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm aware of a few different coalitions in a couple of states that are working towards gearing up for policy campaigns to close these facilities. Emma Williams, what is needed from an abolitionist perspective, not just a reform Mm -hmm. perspective, uh, but one that sees... uh, well, the abolition of these kinds of institutions is fundamental. I think um, abolition offers us a the opportunity to take a more transformative lens when we look at harm. So um, instead of asking how do we punish people when sexual harm occurs, we can say how do we end all sexual harm everywhere. And I think that... Um, There's plenty of data to support that the majority of survivors of sexual harm um, go to friends and family first, that those are their primary support systems. A lot of people never involve the criminal legal system. And there's plenty of data to support that a lot of people who cause child sexual abuse also are victims of child sexual abuse. And so I think taking that more transformative lens um, to these facilities can... uh, to, and to thinking about transformative treatment options can can really offer us some exciting community-based interventions. Um, Jade, our producer, program producer, is, uh, has sent me a note saying that we do have a caller on, on the line with a question. Hello, Steve, you're on the air. Yeah, um, Ms. Williams, what parties, if any, stand to benefit from this phenomena, uh, bizarre phenomena, beyond the obvious employed staffers, and how many employees are there in this uh, establishment nationwide? It, personally speaking, as a cinephile, I, I can't help but be, be reminded of the Steven Spielberg 2002 release called Minority Report, a mm-hmm. Tom Cruise vehicle dealing with uh, preventative law enforcement. Thank you, Alan. Steve, I'm glad that you raised that. I was struggling to remember the name of that movie. I wanted to reference it earlier. So, yes, I I think that it rings that bell for people very frequently. I don't have the numbers of the um, exact number of employees at Rushville in front of me right now, but I know that part of what makes this specific kind of incarceration substantially more expensive than any other kind um, is that there is a uh, lower ratio of residents or uh, incarcerated people to staff um, and that in addition to those uh, companies profiteering or those direct parties who are employed profiteering the companies that create the treatment curriculum uh, they they are benefiting from this all of the private contractors who are providing the food and all of the other kinds of services that people um, you know require to just live inside um, all of these different uh, corporate entities are profiting from this 
You know, as we get, begin to uh, approach the end of the hour, I want to stay with the, that abolitionist perspective for a moment. Uh, talk about what abolitionist demands would be. I think that the the simple one is to close these facilities. I mean, we should not be incarcerating people, period, but we shouldn't be incarcerating people for crimes that they haven't committed, for, for sure. Um, I also think that, that, you know, abolition isn't just about closing prisons. It's also about building alternatives and solutions. And so I think that um, investing in community mental health supports, uh, investing in transformative solutions uh, to prevent child sexual abuse, creating more spaces where young people feel are connected to adults that they can trust and uh, access care from those people and talk about what's going on at home for them. Um, all of these, I think, are abolitionist uh, solutions. Talk about what restorative or transformative justice initiatives would be. Yeah, absolutely. So um, transformative justice, right, is this idea of it's it's that practice of zooming out and asking uh, what what could we do instead of just saying what happens when how do we punish people when harm has occurred? Restorative justice would ask how do we uh, make sure that everyone involved in this instance of harm is in right relationship with each other and transformative justice would say, how can we zoom out and make sure that the conditions that made this harm possible in the first place are changed? Um, and so I think that having resources that you know don't involve systems of mandatory reporting, don't involve the criminal legal system, only offer people kinds of care that they consent to um, in transformative justice hubs, which oftentimes take place in community-based organizations or informally in relationships between people who have been figuring out how to navigate harm without relying on the criminal legal system for, you know, millennia. Um, I think that those are, are options that we can be looking to that have been successful for people always and could be successful for us again here. Emma Williams, as I hear you laying out what you just did, I, uh, that old slogan from, oh, dating back to Paris 68, the Andre Breton uh, surrealist demand of um, be realistic, demand the impossible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, we're getting down to, to we still have some time. I'm wondering if there's any anything we've missed here that you'd like to touch on that you'd want to take a little bit deeper you know, it's a great question. Um, I think that as I'm looking over this, one thing that I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about uh, the numbers of people in facilities in Wisconsin and what uh, solutions are being offered, um, Wisconsin is one of a couple different states that, that has a steadily declining rate of people in these facilities. And I've been talking with a couple other advocates wondering why that is, because to our knowledge, there's been no substantial policy shift that has changed the criteria for people being admitted to these facilities. And so whether that's a cultural shift around staff waking up and, and saying, okay, we need to get people moving through this. This isn't helpful keeping people here or, you know, financial incentive of the state saying it's really expensive to incarcerate people in these facilities. We want lower populations. I don't know. Um, but I just wanted to share that. I thought that was kind of an interesting trend. And in Wisconsin in particular, the population has decreased by 38.6% between 2018 and 2022. So it's been releasing on average about 28 detainees each year. How might listeners learn more and get involved? It's a great question. So the um, project that that I'm a part of that did this initial service is the uh, or initial survey um, is the Inside Illinois Civil Commitment Project. Uh, you can find us online. Um, our website is InsideCivCom. That's C-I-V-C-O-M-I-L dot com. Um, and then I think that the website um, I'm pulling up right now to confirm, it's uh, transformharm.org. is a resource hub for ending violence. And they have a lot of different tools for people who are interested in engaging in transformative justice and uh, restorative justice solutions to abuse. You know, the report that we've been talking about, your summary report, uh, has appeared with the Prison Policy Initiative. Talk about the uh, PPI and its efforts. Yeah, Prison Policy Initiative is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization that takes data about incarceration, which is oftentimes 
huge uh, numerical data sets or behind paywalls, things that aren't accessible to people, and translates them into more accessible pieces that can support abolitionists and reformers um, and anyone who's invested in changing or observing the changes in the criminal legal system with the data that can support their movements. And do you have that website at hand? I do. We are prisonpolicy.org. Well, that's easy. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) You know, we still... We still have a few minutes, and again, you're succinct. I have to be candid with you that I'm not accustomed to such succinct responses to my questions. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll tell the people who gave me media coaching to give me me a longer leash next time. (laughs) (laughs) No, what else? Talk about, you know, I looked at your website a little bit. I would uh, recommend that people look at that as well. Uh, give that address. Talk about your website. Sure. Your interests. Yeah, that's, that's emmapaytonwilliams.com. Um, I am a, as you said, a researcher activist. I'm an abolitionist. I um, believe in, uh, I think that communities have been handling harm interpersonally successfully for as I said, millennia, uh, there are a lot of people who, particularly black and brown people who have never been able to rely on a criminal legal system and have found ways to um, make do and navigate interpersonal violence without that. And I believe in uh, creating the tools that help people um, continue or, or explore those initiatives or uh, ways of addressing harm if that's something that they haven't done before. So that's what my research seeks to do. And I'm a, a policy analyst and a editor professionally and that's um what i do in the various contexts where i work well emma williams i want to thank you ever ever so much for being with us this hour um and i hope you uh well i hope to have you back at some time uh i've had people from the uh, prison policy initiative on in the past and i'm sure with the documents and in report studies that they do uh We'll have you all back again. Um, I want to thank Jade for helping to produce this program. Chuck, as always, in engineering. Next week we have uh, um, Jonathan uh, Melrod. A uh, he's done a uh, a new, brand new, out recently a book, a kind of autobiography of fighting times, uh, struggles. Uh, some of which uh, were centered here in uh, Madison. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. And again, Emma Williams, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Appreciate you. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With an admission that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted.